I think it'll be a massive step forward in increasing the, the velocity with which new innovation occurs in space. Welcome to Meet the Leader, the podcast where top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest challenges. Today's leader, Chris Kemp. He's the CEO of aerospace company Astra. He'll tell us what's next for the space economy, how he focuses on what's mission critical, and how failure could drive success. Subscribe to Meet the Leader on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please don't forget to rate and review us. I'm Linda Lacina from the World Economic Forum, and this is Meet the Leader. I think much in the same way that you can't even imagine your life without a mobile device uh, or without the internet, we won't be able to imagine what it was like to manage the resources on our planet without having the ability to see things in real time from space. Chris Kemp is the CEO of Astra, a startup that began, like so many others, in a garage. But unlike them, Astra is part of the $400 billion space economy sector. Astra isn't looking to build a city on Mars. It is a space tech company offering space services, launching satellites and delivering payloads into orbit. He is part of a generation of entrepreneurs reshaping how we use space to conduct business here on Earth, improving our connectivity and ensuring that we are better using our natural resources. He'll share with us what the future of a strong space economy could look like and why more regulation is needed to keep it competitive. He'll also share how he has grown as a leader and his unique perspective on failure. After all, rockets famously require exacting perfection. But rethinking things like the economics of construction could bring scale and opportunity to the space economy. He'll talk about all of that, including what he learned in early roles, like a stint at NASA or from building a grocery shopping tool for Kroger. But first, he'll get us started with a definition of the space economy. The space economy is all of the sum total of economic activities that are enabled through space. So you probably take some of these things for granted and don't even know space is involved, but a lot of the internet and the communications that occurs around the planet, uh, whenever you're watching you know, any kind of live video feed from around the world, that's typically being beamed up through satellites, through space. And increasingly, broadband connectivity is being delivered through space as well. And uh, if you're talking on a cell phone, and you're in a remote region of the world, you're typically using space network for backhaul and you know, obviously things like GPS. I think people often think of astronauts and they think of space tourism and space travel, but in reality, that's a small fraction of the overall almost half a trillion dollar space economy. The space economy can improve life on Earth, but what will that look like? What can we expect on the ground? I think much in the same way that you can't even imagine your life without a mobile device or without the internet, we won't be able to imagine what it was like to manage the resources on our planet without having the ability to see things in real time from space. We take weather, take GPS uh, services for granted. They've been around for a long time. Imagine weather that is incredibly accurate. Imagine being able to have the kind of visibility into what's happening in your neighborhood that can only be provided if you're looking down from space. Building on that, imagine everything connected. Uh, imagine your phone never losing connectivity being able to message people regardless of where you are, and then that all working seamlessly together with Wi-Fi and cellular networks. I think we're going to see services that are just so integrated into our devices, our cars, our homes, that you'll take them for granted, just, just like you kind of do with GPS today. And what will be the most surprising element of that in your mind? I think how it changes how we operate businesses. If you're able to truly understand 
for example, how much carbon is coming out of a, of a specific factory, you can begin to hold people accountable and you can hold companies and nations accountable for things in a way that you, you really can't today. And I think that that'll change how we think about economic systems, incentives, and policies and law. And that'll take many decades to really fully be integrated into, into how we do things. Because some of these capabilities are here today. Many people don't even know about them, let alone have the ability to integrate them into their existing products and, and, and businesses. We've announced that we started to work with the UK government to try to establish a spaceport up in Saxford in Scotland. I think that's really just the beginning. We'd love to see spaceports in every country. And we'd love to see every space agency in the world have access to space. Today, you know, there are over 75 space agencies. Uh, less than 10 of them actually have sovereign space access. And uh, there's a huge opportunity by democratizing access to space for the entrepreneurs and the companies and the space agencies in these countries to to further have access to the kinds of things that just a few countries do today. You were involved with this incredible report that just came out on the future of space governance and to the yeah. space economy. There's a lot of actions that were noted in the report. Can you outline those for us so we understand them? One of the things that was very clear in the report is we neither want to over nor under regulate space. And the reality today is that things that should be against the law are simply not. For example, destroying a satellite in space, causing debris to permanently make an area of space unusable for commercial or really any purpose. And I think we need international law to make these types of things that, that are really bad for humanity actually illegal. And But I think you can also overdo it. And what I'd hate to see happen is uh, one of these events occur where regulators step in and they overregulate, and then they impact the ability for commercial companies to operate in space. When most laws were established in space in the 1950s and 1960s, only nation states had access to space. And unfortunately, a lot of the laws didn't contemplate a lot of the commercial activity that we now see in space. The majority of satellites in space are now commercial satellites. In fact, now the majority of launches into space are commercial launches. And as companies like Astro, SpaceX continue to scale, we'll see even more commercial activity in space. So we want to have nation states step in, work together to create law and policy that creates the maximum economic value for humanity and facilitates, and, and the report does a fantastic job of capturing this tension that needs to exist as, as we move forward. And if that space governance gap is not bridged, yes. what happens? What is the worst case scenario? Well, I think the, the report contemplates a few different scenarios. One scenario is we do nothing and we, we it's wild, wild west. And we kind of allow, you know, some of the largest space companies and actors to try to self-regulate. Um, I think that that could potentially result in a suboptimal uh, use of space. When you look at how technology can now be used to allow more competition and more uh, sharing in space safely, just if we if we if we do the work, if we overregulate, it's equally bad. I think that we could see the launch becoming more expensive, more regulated, operating satellites and operating within the spectrum satellites operate uh, becoming even more constrained, and I think that would be bad. But I think the positive outcome, which the report really tries to highlight, is this equilibrium where uh, we implement the right policies that allow maximum commercial participation while at the same time not creating problems such as space debris that could impact 
our overall ability to use space for benefit. An important part of the report was you know, collaboration and partnerships. And you have a special perspective on this. You worked at NASA, and I'm going to read this to make yeah. sure I don't have it wrong. <laughs> you structured an alternative to the typical government procurement, right? So you had public-private partnerships from big tech companies, and they helped offset the costs of sort of different things that you guys needed. So can you talk a little bit about that and the types of partnerships, the new types of thinking that we're going to need to build yeah. this new space economy? That's a great question. I really believe in partnerships. And if you look at most of the countries on Earth don't need to build their own AWS or Microsoft Azure, Salesforce.com, because it already exists. And so they can subscribe to these things as services, and then they can configure it uniquely for their needs. When you look at things like mega satellite constellations, a country that is small does not need a mega constellation. The majority of the satellites will only spend less than a percent of their time over that country. So 99. You know, 9% of the time they're over other countries, our, that country might not have spectrum to even operate. And so I think through partnerships with the telcos in these countries and by thinking about security and standards so that we can use like cloud computing, a shared constellation and shared multi-tenant infrastructure in space like we do with cloud computing, it'll allow these countries and these, these companies to much more inexpensively and rapidly access space. Sure. And I think that this, this really could unlock the potential of space. Uh, it used to be if you wanted to build an internet company, you had to buy you know, millions of dollars of servers, build networks, have data centers, and you had to have a lot of people that under, understood how to operate all of this. Now you pull out your credit card and you sign up for infrastructure as a service, platform services, software services, and you can just rapidly get a business up and running by using these existing services. The same thing is happening to space right now. It's kind of like the internet in 1999, where we're, we're about to see a big revolution where a transition is occurring from kind of a mainframe computing era of space to a cloud computing era of space. And we accomplish that through partnerships. And when we, we have a tech stack in space uh, that allows you know, all of these technologies to come together through standards, we'll see something akin to the internet happen where space will become even less costly and much more accessible to operate in. What excites you about that? Um, well, it's my background. So you know, <laughs> I, I, I came out of software. I, I built a project called OpenStack, which brought a lot of infrastructure together. And it allowed a lot of the technologies that we take for granted to be accessible, like cloud computing within enterprises. I see this transition as being a natural evolution of what's happened in the, the internet and tech. And now that it's happening in space, we're going to see that happen. So I'm, I'm really excited about it. And it really builds on what I've been working on for almost 20 years now. But partnerships for any company, it's an ongoing thing. It's not a set it and forget it thing. These are yeah. relationships you develop over time. How will Astra change? What capabilities or what things do, will need to grow mm -hmm. or evolve at Astra to make all this work? You saw we acquired a propulsion company. Because we have access to space in a unique position to develop the technologies that are needed in space. So if you see companies like SpaceX bring the cost per kilogram to put a lot of stuff in space, we're equally focused on bringing the cost per launch down. Because as you bring the launch cost down, you make it easier and easier to test and develop and iterate on space technologies. And then as you need to launch things at scale, you have things like the Starship that will allow the economics at scale, like a container ship or a freight train, bring the cost of getting a lot of things into space down. But you need FedEx trucks, you need, you need the you know, proverbial semi-truck that pulls up to the container ship that can more cost-effectively deliver a smaller amount of payload. And as we focus on that, we're going to see the ability to unlock all of the key core technology that you need 
to build new sensors, new radio technology, new satellites much more rapidly in space. Are there sort of block and tackle changes that other companies will need to be making so that they can prepare for this to make sure that they are actually walking the walk when it comes to partnerships? No company should try to do everything. And uh, if you look at the best technology in the world to solve a particular problem, and if you can integrate that through an API or through standards into a product that you're building, you'll just have a better product. Uh, and you won't have to build and reinvent wheels here and there. What's been beautiful about the internet is the idea that you can build complex applications on top of microservices. And we've seen this popularized with Amazon Web Services, the Google Cloud, Microsoft Azure. If you need to recognize a face or do voice recognition or do text recognition, you don't have to write that from scratch. There are services that you can use that work incredibly well that you can subscribe to. And really what you're doing is composing these services. And in space, you'll see the same opportunity. So instead of having to build a satellite from scratch, just like in the 1980s, you had to build a computer from scratch. That's crazy. You know, building a satellite from scratch is even harder than building a computer from scratch. And no one builds computers from scratch. And so as, as we start to see companies that take the approaches that like Apple and Dell applied to the personal computer, to satellites, you're going to start to see lower cost, more capable satellites. And then you'll be able to plug in things like plug and play cameras and sensors. And then if you're trying to solve a problem in space, you're just focused on building the sensor and the software that's important to your application, not building and operating a whole satellite and satellite constellation. It's uh, it's really going to take, I think it'll be a massive step forward and increasing the, the velocity with which new innovation occurs in space. You mentioned your background and all the things that you've built over the years. Uh, I want to mention your first business was a grocery shopping service <laughs> for Kroger, yep. which is fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how you have changed as a leader since then? Yeah. Open shop, it, you know, we call it. I think open is is one of the themes there. We, we did open stack in, a, in the last company. And, and I think really what we're focused on now is open space, right? It's instead of building closed and proprietary networks, building open standards and, and building on standards that support maybe like an internet in space where satellites can talk to other satellites and you're forming networks like you form on the internet where you know routers can talk to each other because they're underlying standards. So I think that's the, the story arc that kind of runs through my career. And uh, I think I'm really excited to see what, what can happen when you instead of have just a couple of, of small, large companies that attempt to really do everything for a government, uh, when you have a competitive commercial sector where there's cooperation and open standards that are driving a much more thriving and competitive economy in space. You have been working in this space for a long time. Is there advice that you would have given to that young man uh, running the <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> open shop? Yeah, I think that, you know, I've had the opportunity to be a leader for a long time. And what you learn as you as you build companies is just how important people are and the team is to the thing you're building. And when you're building something as complex as a satellite constellation or a rocket or a launch system, it takes a lot of very smart people and how you organize them. Uh, the company is there to really provide a platform for really smart people to build things. And then for the, the things that they're building to be the right things, it requires a focus on your customers and it requires great product management, a great, great systems engineering and alignment of teams of brilliant people always working on the right thing at the right time and having it always come together so that the, the overall system performs. It's very interesting when you, when you look at a, a system like a rocket because every single piece has to perform or the whole thing doesn't work. And there are very few problems like that, where if a piece of software and a web application doesn't work, it might break a, a little piece of the page. 
uh, in a rocket, if a little piece breaks, you know, it's, it's a pretty spectacular failure mode. So we're, we're really trying to, to bring the same kinds of distributed systems thinking to space that we've seen on the internet where no one satellite matters anymore. No one launch matters anymore. It's about the economics of the constellation. And so if you can make a rocket that isn't 100% reliable, but is maybe 95% reliable at a 10x lower cost, you can launch 10 times more rockets you know, for a 5% reliability hit. So that makes sense every single time, as long as you're not flying a person on the rocket or putting a billion dollar satellite in the rocket. You know, just like a Google data center can fail and you won't even notice the Gmail is down, we're thinking of satellite constellations as, as highly resilient distributed systems where it really doesn't matter if a particular satellite or launch doesn't doesn't work anymore. Uh, is there a habit that you've built that, gosh, if you wouldn't be able to work without? I think that there's a, a level of rigor that is properly tuned to the system that you're building. And the, the challenge is it's very easy to make something that targets 100% reliability. You just spend a tremendous amount of money testing everything and x-raying every weld and inspecting everything. And that's a great way to make a very costly, you know, human rated system, like an aircraft or something. If you're building space tech and you're never putting people on a rocket, you're, fo you're primarily focused on the economics of a service where you're operating at scale. It's a very different calculus. And I think that builds a different kind of company with a different kind of culture uh, focused on scale. And that's a, it's a, it's a different thing to build. And, and I think that that's where Astra is really trying to differentiate itself is, is bringing what you know, Apple and Google and Microsoft have done with tech into the space industry. And that's why we're in Silicon Valley. That's why we built the company in the Bay Area so we can bring incredibly talented executives and engineers from places like Apple and Tesla and Google and Microsoft in the company, which we've done. What's your daily routine? Uh, I wake up at about 6.30 in the morning uh, after you know, two hours of sleep. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. And uh, tend to uh, you know, do a bit of exercising, get into the office pretty early. I'm there until about 7 p.m. And then I try to allocate the rest of my time uh, to my wife and my dogs and my family. And then you know, get, get to sleep typically too late and then do it all over again. And I try to take weekends and, and spend time with family and friends. What do you guys do on the weekend? Wow, we travel a lot. Um, you know, we're, we're here. We try to balance um, being at home and being with family with uh, traveling. And a lot of our friends have distributed themselves around the world as a result of COVID. Astra did not. Uh, we used this to really focus the company. We build everything at the factory. So a lot of our company is, is focused on designing and manufacturing all the components in our systems. And so raw materials come in one door, rockets go out the other door. And that, that's a very hands-on thing. And so as a, as a company, you know, like uh, Amazon and Whole Foods and perhaps Tesla, we had all of our employees just work throughout the pandemic as a critical national security. We just had to focus and had to continue to build. And I think that that really kept the, the culture of the company together. And we, we haven't gone through this whiplash that a lot of companies have seen where uh, everybody was all distributed around the world and they've had to kind of collect everyone back again at the office. Um, we never left. Do you have children? I have one son. His name is uh, John. He's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what advice will you give him about, you know, career advice about sort of navigating this, these new frontiers, uh, these, this new world? What advice will you give him? He's really excited about mathematics right now. He's an incredible chess player. Um, he's brilliant. I, I think that um, I encourage him to finish what he, what he starts, um, work hard and uh and just enjoy, you know, enjoy learning as much as possible. If you're always motivated to be curious and to learn, there's nothing you can't accomplish. I think where you run into problems in life is if 
you just take things for granted and you accept things versus really deeply try to understand things that opens doors. Is there a book that you recommend? Let's see. Recently, what are the ones that are, you know, I've enjoyed from a business perspective, more or less anything Peter Drucker's written. He's kind of known as the father of, of management. I've really been inspired by him. I think anything that really helps us deeply understand our own psychology is is also important. If you're really able to motivate yourself, particularly to focus on on hard and interesting things and remain curious and also be happy even when things don't work out, when you fail. I, I teach a class at Stanford on a failure in their uh, graduate school business. That's uh, really something that I, I'm grateful for because it, it keeps the importance of failing greatly and learning from your failure you know, in my constant uh, attention. And we fail a lot. A lot of times uh, we try to hide it or we don't acknowledge it and then we don't learn as much as we could uh, from, from failure. So I think that's, that's an important one. What's a failure that you're grateful for? Wow. I would say the first failure was celebrated as a success. So we started our company in a garage at the end of 2016. And within 18 months, we had flown a rocket. And we knew at the time it would fly for probably less than 60 seconds, but we flew it anyway, knowing that it would fail during the flight just so that we could collect data and you know, learn maybe there's something else that we didn't know. We know, we know that that won't work. 60 seconds in or less. And we did learn so much more. And then we repeated that and we were actually able to reach space and put payloads in orbit years faster than any company in history as a result of this ability to embrace learning really through what others might see as failure. I'm grateful that my co-founder and our entire team just accepted a couple of failures on the way to success, but you know, we're embracing that. And was there a moment in that where you, you sort of hit a wall, but you, you, you overcome it? There was. There was a moment where we were, we were a couple of years in. This was in the beginning of 2020. We were about to go out, raise capital, and we had a valve fail. And we lost a rocket right before a launch. And it actually, not only we lost the rocket, we lost the launcher that launched the rocket. And then the next week, the pandemic hit and everybody was asked to go home. This, this was a moment for the company where everything counted. And so we had to pare down the company to just the critical people that we needed so we could buy ourselves lots of runway. And within a year, we were on track to go public. We had demonstrated that we could get to orbit with the rocket and the team absolutely persevered through it and succeeded. I think it's all how you react to these things. And it made us stronger. And you know what, what came out of that was people that were really committed to the mission that were really critical to our success. And then we built the company around that. So as we were able to raise more capital, it was that core group of people that persevered and, and succeeded uh, that we built the company around. Mm -hmm. And had we not had that happen, we would have had an, a larger group of people that, you know, are all great. And, you know, we're sorry to, you know, sorry, we couldn't have them throughout the entire pandemic, but we were really forced to cut everything but the absolute critical core people and then build the company around that. You mentioned that how you react to change is usually the most critical. Is there maybe a trait that you were able to deploy that you depended on during that time that you wouldn't have been able to sort of survive or navigate without? I think you, you have to put the mission and the company first. I, I think that when you create a company, you're creating a living entity, like an organ of society. And you have to think about more than your needs, more than anyone's needs on the, on the team. What does this thing need to survive? You have to make a lot of difficult decisions when you're building a company because a lot of times what the company needs isn't what you want or isn't kind of what your vision for things are. And so 
I think by really trying to understand what makes the company successful and what are the things that we need to see and doing whatever is necessary to kind of care and feed for it as it grows is the lesson there. People really are everything. And if you're doing this right, you should, you should have people that are truly inspired by your mission, that are working on teams that are very connected to the piece of the puzzle that they're solving. And they, they need to understand how their work contributes to the success of the overall organization. And if, if leadership is just finding amazing people, using every tool at your disposal to amplify and incentivize their strengths, mitigate their weaknesses, and then direct all of their passion and their energy at a really important problem. You know, we, we like to think that improving life on Earth from space is literally the most important thing that you can do as an engineer. And it inspires everyone to come in and, and want to wake up every morning and, and work on the mission. You know, there are other things that inspire people. You know, doctors are inspired for reasons that are important to them. Engineers at Astra are inspired to create a healthier, more connected planet. And nothing is a more powerful motivator than that mission. And then I, I just try to get out of people's way and make sure that we, we remove impediments and, and the rest of the company's there to support them and, and we're building the right thing for our customers. That was Chris Kemp. Thanks so much to Chris and thanks so much to you for listening. For a transcript of this episode, please go to wef.ch slash podcasts. You'll find transcripts from Meet the Leader as well as its sister podcasts, Radio Davos and the Book Club podcast. And if you want to hear more about the business of space, please find your way to Radio Davos. That is my colleague Robin Pomeroy's podcast, and he has an amazing episode, number 68, released this past July, called Space, How Advances Up There Can Help Life Down Here. On it, you will hear from the International Space Station and one expert convinced we will have a city of a million humans one day on Mars. You can find that in all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and your favorite favorite platform. This episode of Meet the Leader was presented and produced by me with Juan Turan as studio engineer and Jerry Johansson as editor and Gareth Nolan driving studio production. That's it for now. I'm Linda Lucina with the World Economic Forum. Have a great day.